I invite you now to stand with me. We're only going to read the first verse of the first book, the first letter to the church at Thessalonica this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. In God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Let's pray together. Father, we start this morning by recognizing we have worshiped you. We pray, God, that your name has been glorified amongst your people here in this local church. Thank you, God, that we can gather together and bring praise and glory to your name and exalt your son, Jesus. I pray, God, for the next four days that are before us as a congregation, as we open our doors wide to families from all around our community who will come for Vacation Bible School. I pray that every boy and girl that walks into this church knows that this is a group of people who love them. I pray that we will care for families and people well. Also, God, would they hear the gospel would they know that not only do we love them, but far beyond our own love for them is your love for them. That they would hear of Jesus and that some would believe even unto salvation. So God, we ask you to do that which we cannot do. While we can decorate and prepare and cook and clean and teach and guide and love children and families, we cannot save anyone, but you, oh God, can by your grace that we will see in the text today. Thank you, God, for an opportunity to begin a new series this morning. With the next few months, be edifying for our church as we see how your apostle has written to these two, these two letters to this one church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, it may be that you're new with us today, new over the last few weeks, uh, maybe just brand new today, or you've come into the life of our church over the last year, and all you've ever known is me preaching Genesis. And Genesis is different than Thessalonians, all right? It's going to preach different. Uh, the outline is going to look different for you. I would encourage you, if you've not done so, we provide um, ESV scripture journals, which is the translation of the Bible that I preach from. They're on, there are several of them on the back tables. It gives you an opportunity to take all your notes and keep them into one place. And even if you wanted to get up and get one right now, uh, you would be free to do so. Um, but when I start a new series, I typically preach a sermon like this. And so you may say, wait, you've read one verse, preacher. How are you gonna talk that long on this one verse? Well, we got a lot that we're going to do because when I, when I preach a, when I start a new series, I try to preach a sermon that does two things. First, that puts this book, one of 66, and actually, since we're doing First and Second Thessalonians together, it's gonna be two books out of 66. And I try to place that book, that author, that, those recipients, in the grand narrative that God is telling throughout redemptive history. For the last year, we've been in Genesis, beginning that grand narrative, all the way back into, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth through the fall of man and the promise of God to Abraham and that promise passing on to the people through Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons. And we've placed that where it belongs. Now we fast forward centuries, millennia ahead to 
the Apostle Paul, during his second missionary journey, writing to a primarily Gentile congregation. Very different. And I think it's edifying for us to think about where this fits. So that's the first thing I try to do. The second thing I try to do when we start a new series is tell you what the whole book is going to be about. And in this case, two books. Two letters from the Apostle Paul, actually from Paul and a group of people on that journey with him, to these Thessalonians. I want to introduce the whole series for us today. So in many ways, this is an exposition of the, entire, the entirety of these two books, setting our minds not only on where this fits, but on what we will see over the coming months as we walk through these two letters together. So let's begin with the Thessalonians' place within the unfolding story of God's church. I say the unfolding story of God's church because that is where we are in the New Testament. The New Testament is the story of Jesus and then Jesus establishing the church of God, the assembly of God, the people of God on earth. And since this is a New Testament book, it takes place during the church age, during the time of God's church on earth. So who are the Thessalonians? Who is it that is writing to them? And what is the occasion for the writing? Well, the Apostle Paul, who you're very likely familiar with, probably outside of Jesus himself, one of the most prominent figures, maybe even the most prominent outside of Jesus in all of the New Testament. Silas, who is secondary, and Timothy, both of those maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't, and I'm going to introduce those guys. Plant a church in a Roman city known as Thessalonica during Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, you may say, the second missionary journey, what's that? I'm new to church. I've never heard of this before. Well, the Apostle Paul took multiple missionary journeys, uh, three of which are recorded in Scripture. There's the possibility even uh, of a fourth missionary journey as we place some things together of the writings of Paul. But this is taking place during his second missionary journey. His first missionary journey was a man named Barnabas. Now, most of this we know from the book of Acts, and we're going to walk quickly through several chapters of the book of Acts to place these two letters in its place in the redemptive narrative of the New Testament. And after Paul and Barnabas returned from what was Paul's shortest missionary journey, it was primarily just right there in the Middle East and certain portions of Asia Minor, he returns then to Israel where they have the first Jerusalem council and Paul meets with the other apostles, the disciples of Jesus, and they have to determine this, what's going to happen with all these Gentiles that are now of the faith? How Jewish do we need to make them become? This was the question. Do they need to be circumcised or not? And the Jerusalem council met and they determined they do not need to be circumcised, uh, but there were a couple of instructions they give and they send those instructions to uh, the Gentile church. And then Paul is going to go on his second missionary journey. And at the end of Acts 15, we read this, a sharp disagreement arose so that Paul and Barnabas separated from each other. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, so Paul and Barnabas have 
had a disagreement. The disagreement was actually over the guy named Mark who had abandoned Paul on his first missionary journey. Barnabas, who is an encourager, wants to bring Mark along in the faith. And so he takes him on a missionary journey. Mark ends up being redeemed in Paul's eyes. Later in, in a writing of Paul, he says, send for Mark, tell him to come to me because he's useful for my ministry. So Mark becomes, ends up being redeemed in Paul's eyes. But because of Mark's inclusion in Barnabas's plans, Paul separates and he ends up with a guy named Silas. Now I'm calling him Silas because that's easier to say than Sylvanus, but it's the same guy, actually the same name. And if you want to know, the guy actually had three names. His, his, what was likely his most common name would have been the same name that Paul would have had just in a different language. Paul's Hebrew name is Saul. Silas's Aramaic name was Saul. And it's translated into Greek, most likely as Sylvanus, and then shortened, maybe even a nickname, into Silas. So this is a guy that would have gone by three different names, and he's called primarily Silas or Sylvanus in the text. I'm going to call him Silas just because that is a little shorter. So the two of them set off on Paul's second missionary journey at the end of Acts chapter 15. Then we pick up in Acts chapter 16, Paul is ministering from city to city in Asia Minor, and he meets a guy named Timothy. Paul came also to a city called uh, Derb and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for the observance of decisions that had reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So they're bringing the message to the people that Paul had been on his first missionary journey to. They're bringing the message from the Jerusalem council. And we're told in Acts 16 that all of the churches were strengthened and increased in number daily. And then from there, Paul's gonna forge new ground. He's gonna go, into, go to places and cities that he's never been before. And he's traveling throughout. Well, I asked our guys to put this map up here just so you can kind of see it, right? He's traveling throughout what is present day Turkey known as Asia Minor and wanting to go into Asia proper. But we're told that Paul is prevented by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not told how the Holy Spirit prevented Paul. We're just told that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit prevents Paul from going into Northern Asia. And so he ends up in a place called Troas on the Aegean Sea. And he really wants to go north. He doesn't want to cross the sea. And one night he has a vision. We're told in Acts 16, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go out in, on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And you say, why does this matter? Two things. First, Paul's going to have to get on a boat to get there. He's in Troas and he's going to have to cross the Aegean Sea. Second, what Paul is doing is he is leaving Asia and going to Europe. So this is going to be the first time that the gospel is going to be proclaimed to Gentiles in Europe. And this is known as the Macedonian call. And so the group here, which consists now because they have Timothy with them, having picked him up along the way, the group of Paul, Silas, and Timothy take a ship across the northern part of the Aegean Sea and land in Neapolis. 
And then they begin to travel what is known as the Via Ignatia. This was one of the most important roads in the Roman Empire. It was built in the second century BC. It was actually used by Julius Caesar during the Roman Civil War. And that's what that line from Neapolis down to Berea, it's just kind of the, the, that, that Roman road uh, and it actually expands all the way across to the next sea. So it was a very important trade route. And Paul just kind of follows that trade route, we're told. He ends up in a city called Philippi, which Paul would later write the letter of Philippians to the church that's there. He's imprisoned in Philippi. Uh, he's greatly beaten him and Silas are. They're put into prison. They're singing hymns to God in the middle of the night. All of the prisoners are listening to it. God sends a great earthquake. The chains fall off. The Roman jailer comes in and sees that Paul and everyone else is free, goes to take his own life. And Paul stops him, shares the gospel with him. This man in Philippi then is converted. Then the next morning, the, the rulers of Philippi come and they see Paul free and they tell him to leave the city. And so Paul does. Then we get to Acts 17. This is where Thessalonians comes into place. So let's read this starting in verse one. Now, when they had passed through two cities that were not told anything about or that Paul even did anything there, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in and was as, as was his custom on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and, and proving that, uh, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So this is this, the account that Luke gives us in the book of Acts about the gospel coming to the city of Thessalonica. This is the beginning stages. They're not there long. And what Paul does in in Thessalonica is what he does in so many other cities. He goes into a major Roman center, which would have a synagogue. The, it's interesting to recognize here that what God had done in the centuries prior as the people of God of the Old Testament, the Jews had spread out around the Roman Empire in the major cities, they built synagogues, which prepared the way for the gospel to spread into these cities. Because Paul ends up going, every time he goes into a city with a synagogue, that's where he starts. He starts in the synagogue because these would be the people with the background to understand the coming Messiah. And so that's exactly what Paul does here. He goes into the synagogue, he begins to proclaim the gospel. And while we're told in the text that some of them believed, most of them do not. In some places, many Jewish people believed. In this place, only some believed. There was a far greater conversion we're told in the text, of, uh, of Greeks or of Gentiles than of Jews. Then what happens next after their conversion 
requires for us to understand the city of Thessalonica a little better. Thessalonica was a very large city by ancient standards. Over 100,000 people lived in this Roman city, possibly one of the 10 or 12 largest cities in the Roman Empire. It was a key city in the region geographically because it was on the Aegean Sea. It had a central harbor. It was on the Via Ignatia. It was on that road that stretched all the way across Greece. It had mining, fishing, and farming interests. But most importantly, Thessalonica was a free city. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't part of the Roman Empire, but it meant they were allowed to govern themselves. You see, when the Roman Empire spread, most often the, the Roman military would establish new control and new authority and establish a new governor uh, for the Roman Empire in that place. That did not happen in some cities, and these were known as free cities, and Thessalonica was one of them. So the primary concern of the ruling class in Thessalonica was this, keep our city from becoming controlled by Rome. That's all they cared about. And so the Jews who had not accepted Jesus in the synagogue know this. And what we're told is that they, jealousy grows because some devout Greeks that could also be God-fearing Greeks, these were Greek people who either had recognized that there was one true living God but had not gone all the way into uh, Jewish conversion by being circumcised or had either just added the Hebrew God into their own pantheon of gods because there were so many of them converted and jealousy arises there in the synagogue, they devise a plan. Their plan is to go into the market and they get some of the lowest class people. They get hooligans to just start a riot. And they start a riot, which causes the ruling class then to become concerned because what's going to happen? The Romans are going to come in and take control. And they bring Paul and Silas and these new converts before those ruling people. And they say, these are the people that started it. Not only starting in here, but you heard what happened in Philippi. You've heard what happened in all these other places. They're causing all of these other issues. And so Paul's time in uh, Thessalonica is cut very short because this ruling class requires Jason to give a deposit. That's why he pays money, basically ensuring that there will be no more riots that happen in the city. And that very night, the missionary group is taken out of the city and sent on to their next city, which is Berea. From Berea, Paul and, uh, goes by ship to Athens, and then eventually ends up in Corinth. But before leaving by ship to Athens, something from the letter, the first, Thess the, the first letter to the Thessalonians gives us a clue of what happens. Listen to what Paul writes to them in 1 Thessalonians 3. Therefore, we could bear it no longer and we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's coworker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. So there in, in, in Athens, or before they, uh, they, while they were in Athens, they're, they're willing to say, he says, we're willing to even be left alone, meaning we're willing to, Paul and Silas were the ones willing to be left alone, to send Timothy. So Paul sends Timothy back. Eventually he sends Silas somewhere else and Paul goes by himself uh, to Corinth. And when we read this in Acts 15, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word te testifying to the Jews 
that the Christ was Jesus, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So this is in Corinth. So there's a reunion of the mission team, which had split for a little while, Timothy going back to Thessalonica, Silas going to some unnamed place, and then all three of them coming back together in Corinth where they stay for a year and a half. And it is from Corinth during that year and a half that the apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy write back-to-back letters to this fledgling church. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, we read, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, So this is after Timothy has come back and has brought us the good news of your faith and love reported to to you. Always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So Paul in his letter dates it. He puts the place that this happens. It's in Corinth. It's during this time of reunion where Timothy has, has returned. And then you'll notice Paul at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians and at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians, Paul attributes the letter to all three of them. Paul Silvanus and Timothy, all three of them who had had this experience in Thessalonica where they had proclaimed the gospel, where they had seen this mob arise, where they had been shuffled out in the dark of night, where Timothy has returned to them and brought back a report. Now all three of them write one letter and then whoever it is, we're not told who delivered the letter, whoever it is delivers the letter, brings back additional news uh, from amongst the Thessalonians. We're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. So whoever was delivered that first letter comes back and delivers more information. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy write a second letter to this same church. So right around... 5051 AD, during this 18-month period of time that Paul and Silas and Timothy, this missionary team on their second missionary journey are in Corinth, they write what becomes the first letters from the apostles to the New Testament church, at least the first ones written by Paul. There is at least one letter of an apostle that likely predates these, but these are the first letters written by Paul. You can't go by the order that's in your Bible. <laughs> They're ordered in your Bible, the letters of Paul uh, from, from Romans to Philemon, and they're actually ordered in length, okay, not in date. So First and Second Thessalonians were the first two letters that Paul writes to the churches. And is that that we will explore over the coming months. But let's think now about what he said just here in this first verse, where he wishes them grace and peace because grace and peace are the keys to understanding what Paul's going to be talking about in this, these two letters. Grace and peace are our keys of understanding saving faith, present responsibility, and future reality. A traditional Roman letter always began the same way. It began with the identification of the sender, next the recipient, and then a greeting. Most often it just said greeting. Most of the letters that we have from the Roman period follow that formula exactly. Who's sending it, who are they sending it to, and then greeting. But here in his first two letters to the Christian churches, Paul establishes his own tradition and a tradition that he will keep in every single case. In every New Testament letter that we have from the Apostle Paul, either to churches or to other individuals that span the course of a couple of decades, Paul uses 
unique language that's different from the greeting of a Roman letter. He says something to the effect of grace and peace. Now, he doesn't always say it in the exact same way. We're going to see the difference between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Sometimes he adds the word mercy. There are times that Paul changes this, but it is always, in every case, involves the words grace and peace. Now, why would he do this? Well, grace is a Christian ideal. Grace is receiving that which we do not deserve. And Paul considered himself a messenger of the grace of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to Gentiles about the grace that he had proclaimed to them. And he wants to remind them first and foremost, right off the bat, of the grace of God that has brought them into the family of God. But we also have to be reminded that Paul is a Hebrew And so not only does he offer them grace, but he also offers them the traditional Hebrew greeting of peace, shalom. Now the Hebrew word shalom, peace, does not merely mean an absence of conflict. That's what we often think peace is, right? Peace is when we're not at war. But that's not what the Hebrew word shalom means. The Hebrew word shalom is not just an absence of conflict, but the a a right relationship, primarily a right relationship with God and with one another within the community. So Paul takes these two ideas, grace, a Christian idea, peace, a Hebrew idea, and offers it here to the church in Thessalonica and to every other church that he writes to, telling us this, that grace and peace and our understanding of God offering his grace to us, which brings us into right relationship with him is crucial for our understanding of everything that Paul is going to write. And in these two letters to the church at Thessalonica, Paul focuses on three things. He focuses on the past, he focuses on the present, and he focuses on the future. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to see how grace and peace help us to fully understand the past saving faith that we enjoy, our present responsibility and our ultimate future reality. First, grace and peace in our saving faith. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter two. This chapter begins by Paul writing, for you yourselves know brothers that Our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had had boldly in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error and purity or attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. And you skip down to verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as, the, as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, until you get to that last phrase there, just about everything that Paul says is past tense. He's talking about the word that he proclaimed, past tense to them. He's talking about the word that they received that was from God, that is the gospel. So Paul, in different times here in both of these two letters, he reminds the Thessalonian church to remember the word that they had received, to dwell on the truth of the gospel. 
that we don't ever walk away from that, that it is a controlling idea in our lives as believers that something happened in our past. And what happened isn't something that we created of our own self. It's not some tradition that we were born into or brought into, but it is the very word of God. It's the gospel of God that Paul says he was entrusted with and it is the gospel of God that Paul says he proclaimed to the Thessalonians and it is the gospel of God that the Thessalonians believed that brought them to salvation. And grace and peace is something that we receive at the moment of our justification. When we believe in the gospel of God, We do so because God has offered to us something that we do not deserve. That is the grace of God. And when God changes our hearts and gives us new life in Christ, we then have peace with God. Hear me today, believer. You are at peace with God. I don't know if you're at peace with the person sitting next to you today. I don't know if you're at peace with your neighbor at home. I don't know if you're at peace with your coworkers. I don't know if you're at peace with humans, but if you are in Christ, know this, you are at peace with God. And there is no better person to be at peace with than with God. And here's why you're at peace with God, because he has given you something you do not deserve. He has offered grace in your life. And we need to believe that. We need to understand that and we need to operate in life by remembering what God has done. And so we'll be reminded of that in coming weeks as Paul writes in the past tense, reminding them and ultimately reminding us today, the modern church of what God has done through the power of the gospel in our lives. But there are also times that Paul writes in the present tense and we have to understand grace and peace as it relates to our present responsibility. In 1 Thessalonians chapter four, he writes, finally then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us and how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Do you notice what Paul says? He begins again by reminding them of the past, but then he drags them into the present reality and says, the grace of God at work in your life and the very fact that you're at peace with God demands that you live a certain way, that there are expectations not from man, but from God. Now we have to be careful as the church because the church far too often historically has created laws of man, rules of man, expectations of man, and elevated them to the expectation of God. We have to be careful here. But if we're saying something the scriptures say, then we can join with Paul and say, this isn't of man, this is of God, that God has called us to holiness, present holiness. And God gives us the grace to walk in that holiness. And we should walk in it because we are at peace with him. In his second letter, 
to this church. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, now we command you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness not in, in, and not in accord with the traditions that you receive from us. For you yourself know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone uh, is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now in a few months, I'm gonna preach that one of the most misquoted verses of Paul. I'm just reading it here in the context of this. Paul, in writing these two letters, is very concerned, not just with the past reality, the, the saving faith that the Thessalonians had, but he's very concerned with how they're living now. And it's why, it's why I read this particular text. There's others in the second letter, but I wanted to read this one because I had previously read where the, the, the person who delivered the letter, that first letter brings back a message that idleness had crept in and Paul immediately writes again. And what does he say? Don't be idle. Be concerned with how you're presently living. Understand that you still have a present responsibility. It's why in that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, he talks about sanctification. That's the, the, the process of, the, the ongoing process of putting off sin and putting on Christ. Because our responsibility isn't just to believe in saving faith, but our responsibility is to believe in saving faith and to continue in that belief, allowing it to transform our lives into the holy image of God's son, Jesus Christ. But there are also times in these two letters that Paul doesn't speak in the past tense or the present tense, but in the future tense. We see grace and peace in our future reality. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, starting verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though Jesus got, uh, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We'll bring future tense. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven in a cry of command with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul says, it's not only about what you believed. It's not only about what you do, but grace and peace are the keys to understanding what is to come. God's grace is sufficient in our lives, even for things we don't fully understand and haven't happened yet. When, when we were still in spring equip, I taught for four weeks preparing for uh, these chapters that are going to deal with the end times. I taught kind of a survey of the history of, of end times and presented different ways that the church has historically understood this and how the church now in different ways understands this. And here's what you need to understand. If you missed all of that, here's what you need to understand. N nobody knows exactly how this is all going to go down because it hadn't happened yet. And so there's different ideas and it doesn't make, ultimately one's gonna be wrong and one's gonna be right, but nobody has a corner on that right now. 
We're all just doing the best that we can to try not to be ignorant as it relates to the future. So how do grace and peace relate to that? Well, because I don't know what's coming, I do know Jesus is coming back one day. I don't know if that's tomorrow, if that's 50,000 years from now. I don't know, but grace is sufficient in my life. And I don't have to understand it. I can just have faith that the grace of God in my life is sufficient until that day that God has promised. Obviously, they had more questions because in the second letter, he writes about this same subject. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. This speaks to the peace that God brings. You see, to be shaken or to be alarmed is to not be at peace. And we don't have to worry about the future because we are at peace with God. Second, we see the source of our grace and peace. I told you that this formula that Paul gives, grace and peace, varies from one letter to another, even amongst the two letters here in the two letters to the church at Thessalonica. In the first, he just says grace and peace. In the second, he says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants the church in Thessalonica to understand a truth that grace and peace is not found anywhere outside of Jesus. That it is only in and through the work of Jesus Christ that we receive that which we do not deserve and come into a relationship of peace with God. And in the benediction of both of these letters, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of the only true source of peace with God. At the end of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has called you, he who called you is faithful, he will surely do it. It is God alone who brings us into justifying faith. It is God alone who sanctifies our daily lives. And it is God alone who keeps us blameless until the coming of the Lord. And he is faithful. That is our peace with God. And knowing that our past, our present, and our future is secure in him. At the end of 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way the Lord will be with you. Understand something today, friend. If you're seeking peace outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you'll never find it. If you're hoping to make yourself right with God by something that you do in this life, you will fall short every time. It is only through the grace that God offers us through the work of Jesus that we can have peace. And at the end of both letters, Paul reminds his readers of the true source of peace with God, which is God himself. So what? Have I, by the grace offered through Jesus Christ, found peace with God in all things? It is only through the grace that is offered to us, that which we do not deserve that is offered to us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we can find peace with God. My question to you today is, have you found that? 
In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we read, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way that we can have peace with God. That is the only way that your friends and family can have peace with God. You want to know why Paul was so concerned with this church that he would send his protege Timothy back there even though they were run out of town? You want to know why he wrote two letters over the course of 18 months to these people? Because he was concerned with their understanding of the gospel. He didn't get to spend much time there. This is just a fledgling little church, mostly Greek Gentile converts. Paul wants to make sure they understand the gospel. Do we have that same kind of concern? Do you have that same kind of concern for your friends who you've shared the gospel with once? You share the gospel with them once, you're like, well, I did my part. Really? Like Paul's sailing seas to get the gospel to people. Paul's writing letters and and sending people into harm's way and often going into harm's way himself to get the gospel to people. The message of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That is the only way that people can have Peace with God. And Jesus says this in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do, I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Hear me today, Christian. There is nothing in our past, in our present, or that could come in our future that could separate us from God. That is what it means to have peace. So I ask you today, are you living in that peace? If you've come to saving faith in Jesus, are you actually living as if you have saving faith in Jesus? If all of the world were to fall around us tomorrow, would we join in our pagan society and wring our hands and wonder what's next? Or would we stand firm on the gospel of Jesus and say, I have peace. I have peace. I have peace. Because what God has promised will be fulfilled. What God has done in my past is just as much a reality as what God will do in the future. And I have peace with God, not peace that the world thinks of peace, but peace with the one who truly matters, brought to us by the grace of Jesus Christ alone. So if you've never come to that saving faith in Jesus, by the grace of God, believe today and be saved. If you have been, live life of peace. Live a life of holiness and sanctification dedicated towards God, recognizing that there is nothing in this world that can shake us. There is nothing in this world that should make us afraid or trouble our hearts because Jesus has left us in peace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us that which we do not deserve. That by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we may have life and have it abundantly. God, I pray that that past faith of so many in this room will be the reminder to us as we walk through trouble in life. Let us firmly fix our feet in the peace of Jesus. And for those hearing this today who have been trying to create their own peace, would they today recognize their sin, call upon the name of Jesus and be saved, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.